We continue today in our journey through the life of Peter. Last week we were led by Peter to a place where we were forced to ask the question, how badly do we want to be like Jesus? How badly do we want to be like Jesus? Peter was being taught by Jesus how to submit to the thoughts of God and leave behind the thoughts of man. He had attempted to talk Jesus out of taking the road to the cross in the story we looked at last week. And that thought that Jesus could somehow avoid the cross was seen by Jesus as nothing less than satanic. So did you carry that question with you at all this past week? How badly do I want to be like Jesus? Could you answer it honestly? Because the direction of our lives depends on how we answer that question. And maybe your answer is, yes, I want what Jesus has to offer, but I I don't really want to be like him. If that's the case, can you honestly see yourself as a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because being a disciple of Jesus means that we want nothing more in life than to become as much like Jesus as we possibly can. Nothing in life can be more important to us Becoming like Jesus means that we're to devote our lives to following him and becoming like him so that we can be used like him for God's purposes here on earth. And I know that's a scary proposition. It may mean that we're going to have to live a difficult life. Jesus did. His life was hard and we need to be willing to embrace whatever it is that God has in mind for us, even to the point of taking up a cross and dying in shame if that's what God needs us to do. Last week on my drive to Oklahoma and back in two days, I listened to David Platt's book called Radical. Um, This is one of the challenges that he presents in in a very, very powerful book, um, one that you need to read if you haven't yet. Will we surrender the American dream to receive whatever God has in store for us in this life? Uh, The reality for God's children is that we're promised eternity in heaven with him, which will make the American dream seem like a joke in comparison. And so in light of what's to come for us, are we willing to surrender our will to God's when it comes to what we do with this life? And we'll keep coming back to that question here at Chapel Hill in the future. Um, Think about where you're at with denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Jesus. This morning we follow Peter to another encounter with Jesus and the result of that encounter and we will again learn a lot from the way Peter reacted to something that Jesus does and from the way Jesus treats Peter in this circumstance. And yes, this is another up and down experience for Peter and for his extreme character. Whenever Peter opens his mouth in response to something Jesus does, uh, we do get to see a little of ourselves in his reaction, and we're, we're drawn to pay attention and see how it ends. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. Now at this point in John's account of the life of Jesus and his disciples, we find a turning point. Something changes here, and what changes is the focus of Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of John 13, Jesus brings his public ministry to a close. He's spent a lot of time previous to this addressing those who have not yet been exposed to the gospel and those who are opposed to his teaching and who he is and now Jesus turns his attention to those who he referred to as his own. These were the people who received him as the Messiah and he now speaks directly to them. 
He's going to teach them about what lies ahead and what their role in all this is going to be. So in John chapters 13 through 17, Jesus is going to express his love for his followers. He's going to assure them of the hope of heaven. He's going to guarantee them the power that they will need to carry out their calling as his followers. He's going to provide for all of their needs. He's going to promise them that his Holy Spirit is going to come and dwell inside them. And he's going to teach them about the word of God, about peace, about joy. And throughout all this, Jesus' followers will experience the love that he has for them. So let's read the first 20 verses of John chapter 13. John 13, beginning in verse 1. And this is what John writes. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And so we come again to another story that is very familiar to many of you. Um, I have read or heard this story more times than I can remember. Um, some of you may be wondering why we're even looking at this account when it's clearly nowhere near the Easter season. This is the famous foot washing scene. Jesus washes his disciples' feet and we get a nice warm feeling from that, don't we? And then the warmth turns to awkwardness when we're challenged in a Good Friday service to practice this on each other. And there are basins and towels and a room full of other people like ourselves feeling awkward and wondering how the pastor could possibly not have known that this is inappropriate behavior here in Minnesota. 
So let me relieve you of your fear as we get into this passage. Um, We will not be washing each other's feet at the end of this message. I'm actually hoping for something much more significant to happen this morning. I'm praying that many of us will confess and be released of some of our pride this morning. So let's break down this passage a bit and then see what we can take away from it this morning. What was Jesus' motive in washing his disciples' feet? What was Jesus' motive in washing his disciples' feet? Um, This week, as I said, I taught a group of college students that were called LITs, or Leaders in Training, at Camp Victory. And this passage was their motivation for cleaning toilets in the campers' bathrooms all week. Their acts of service were intended to, to develop in them a servant leader mindset. This is what servant leaders do. Yet when I questioned them about why they were at camp for the summer, every one of their answers was actually very (laughs) self-centered. Cleaning toilets was merely something they had to put up with in order to have the privilege of spending the summer at camp with their friends. Now I don't blame them for having the attitude that they had in their program. They were being taught that this is what leaders do. This is how servant leaders act. Servant leaders, based on this story in John 13, do the lowliest jobs. And so here's your list of lowly jobs. What these leaders in training were missing was the motive to do what they do. And that's what Jesus is getting at here in our passage. Jesus goes straight after the hearts of his disciples And he'll do anything to get there. And so it's important that we understand the motive behind this act of service and humility. And that motive is very clearly presented to us in the first verse of our passage. So look again at John chapter 13 verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And why is this verse here? Why not just skip to what Jesus did? Give us the record of what happened. Well, let's acknowledge something here. Jesus always had a reason for doing what he did. Every moment in Jesus' life had a purpose. And that's very significant. It's very important for us to know. When we study the Bible, we need to be on the lookout for the motive or the reason behind what Jesus was doing in the account that we're reading, whatever it may be. And so before we look at Peter's life, let's look at Peter's Lord for a few minutes. This amazing event, Jesus washing his disciples' feet, happened for a reason. It was not a, a random lesson that God had given Jesus as part of his curriculum for teaching his disciples. There was a reason why he washed their feet. Having loved his own, the disciples, Jesus loved them until the end. Things were about to get crazy for Jesus, weren't they? There were a lot of tough days ahead of him, and he knew that. But none of what Jesus knew could could distract him from the love that he had for his disciples. What he did here, he did out of love for those who were closest to him. Love was Jesus' motivation. Love is to be our motivation behind the things that we do for each other. The act itself means nothing without the love behind it. The foot washing would have been an empty act without the love that Jesus had for these men. 
We need to understand why he did this. He loved his own and was now showing them that in spite of all that lay ahead, he was going to love them until the very end. Verse 1 also reveals something that we need to understand about Jesus, uh, Peter's Lord here. And what we need to know is revealed in the words, Jesus knew. Jesus knew. And here again, we are discovering something that reveals the depth of what was happening in this story. There are four things that Jesus knew when he acted in this way, and the first is revealed in verse one. Jesus knew that his hour had come. That's what it says. Jesus knew his mission. Jesus knew that the time of his crucifixion and return to heaven was at hand. This time was why he had come. He had come to die. Jesus knew that his father's plan included his own suffering and death And he knew that the time for that suffering and death had now arrived. God, his Father's will, was being accomplished on God's schedule. And Jesus was fully surrendered to that plan and to that schedule. Jesus knew his mission. Do you know your mission? Do you know your mission? How would you describe your mission? To be happy and take care of yourself? To make your kids happy and take care of them? What is your mission? And if I gave you some time to come up with one and write it down right now, I bet we'd have some pretty, pretty uh, important looking missions throughout this room. But are they God's missions? Is your mission God's mission for you? Are you carrying out his mission for your life right now? This week I challenged this group of elementary age students to rethink that they, the way that they answer a simple but very important question. Um, in my first session, I asked them what they want to be when they grow up. And their answers were great. Um, apparently a lot of kids want to be ninjas when they grow up. <laughs> but by the end of the week, they were practicing answering that question another way. When I asked them what they want to be when they grow up, they'd give me the answer that my own son surprised me with a couple of years ago. They would say, whatever God wants me to be. Whatever God wants me to be. Jesus knew his mission. He knew what God wanted him to be. Do you know your mission? Do you know your mission? Are you completely surrendered to God's plan, God's purpose, God's mission for your life? Jesus, knowing that his time had come, didn't run and hide and wait in fear for his mission to be fulfilled. Knowing what lay ahead, he loved deeply. Knowing that the time that he had with his disciples was short, he went to work expressing to them the depth of his love. He would love them until the very end of his time with them. The second thing that Jesus knew is listed in verse 3. Look at John 13, 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and let's just pause there, Jesus had it all. Jesus knew his resources. Jesus knew that his Father had given him all things. God, of course, is the only one who could possibly have done this for Jesus. And he did. He did. God gave Jesus all things. In Acts 1, we read that all power and authority had been given to Jesus by his Father. 
Jesus spoke for God the Father. Jesus had the power of God the Father. Jesus had the wisdom of God the Father. Jesus had the knowledge of God the Father. Jesus knew all things, including the fact that he had everything. He had all the resources. There was no one on the planet who was more powerful, wiser, more authoritative, more resourced than Jesus Christ. And he knew that. Jesus knew that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He knew that he was greater than any human being ever could be. Jesus knew that he was at the very top of the ladder. He knew that he didn't have to challenge anyone for ultimate authority. And this understanding is absolutely essential when it comes to us hearing what Jesus wants to say to us through this passage. Jesus didn't have anything to prove. He had nothing to prove. He already had it all, but he chose to lay it down, to set it aside, to love and to serve his disciples. Do you know who we are? We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are joint heirs with Christ. That's what the Bible teaches us. We have been given an inheritance that is equal to that of the Son of God. There's nothing we could ever attain that is greater than that inheritance. There's nothing we could ever do to earn that inheritance. We have Jesus Christ and what the Father has given to him is available to us. Jesus knew his resources. He knew that there was nothing that he could gain from asserting himself as the authority in this situation. He had already gained it all. What his father wanted him to do was to humble himself and serve those whom he loved. Jesus had nothing to prove. He had proved it all. He realized that as a child of the king, you have nothing to prove. You have nothing to prove. You and I are branches on the vine that is Jesus Christ. We lack nothing. Our inheritance is everything. There is nothing that we can gain from proving how much superior we are to anyone else. We already have it all. We have access to the resources of heaven and like Jesus, we know that. And our Father is also asking us to set aside what we have already been given and focus on how, we can, on how he can use us to serve others. In verse 3, we also see that Jesus knew his origin. Jesus knew his origin. Jesus knew where he came from. It says that he came from God. Jesus had been sent by God. He came from heaven and he was sent by his Father. Jesus knew that he represented heaven, not the world and its systems and way of thinking. Jesus knew that he came from heaven. Well, where do we come from? We haven't lived in heaven, have we? We know that Jesus came from heaven, but we came from earth. But where does God say that our spirits are located? Where does he say that our spirits are located? Well, we've been over this in the not-too-distant past. Where are our spirits seated? Where are they seated? They are seated at the right hand of the throne of God in the heavenly places. That's where our spirits are. And that's the place that we represent, and that ought to be something we know and recall when we're faced with the opportunities that the world throws at us. 
And fourthly, Jesus knew where he was going. He knew his destination. In verse three, it also says that he knew that he was going back to God, back to his father. Jesus knew his destination and his destination was home. Yet in spite of the fact that Jesus knew he was headed home, Jesus stayed committed to his father's plan. And his father's plan included Jesus laying down his life in service to those who his father had created and given to him as his disciples. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that we are to look to Jesus who for the joy set before him avoided the cross knowing that he was headed home and couldn't wait to get there. Now it says that Jesus endured the cross. He set himself under the curse of the cross says he despised its shame. And it says that he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus knew his destination. He knew where he was going, yet by the grace of God and the love of Christ, he stooped as low as anyone could go and endured the cross before he returned to heaven to be with his Father. Now that is love. Jesus knew his mission He knew his resources, he knew his origin, and he knew his destination. And in spite of knowing all that, he humbled himself to the place of the lowest servant and taught us, his disciples, all about his love for us. Jesus knew exactly what he was getting into every step of the way. He knew his circumstances well, and so he chose to serve. There's so much to be learned from just from understanding what Jesus knew here, let alone what he did. When you read the word of God, look for everything that might be happening in the passage that you're reading. Understand the mind of Jesus, the things that he knew. That can lead us to to get a lot more out of familiar stories like this one that we're looking at. And so Jesus and his disciples had gathered to share the Passover meal together remembering God's faithfulness to his people and delivering them from death many, many years before that. It was a great time of remembrance, one that we now practice when we share communion together. They were borrowing a room to share the celebration of the Passover. When they got to the room, there was nobody there. There was no servant there to wash their feet. And when a guest arrived at your home in those days, you would have a servant come and wash the dirt and dust and road grime off of your feet for you. To recline at the table with dirty feet was unacceptable. It would not be tolerated in homes back then. This was the job of the lowliest servant. In fact, this was so low that if the servant was Jewish, they would not be expected to do this task of washing the guest's feet. Only a Gentile servant was low enough to do this job. But as they settled in to share the feast, no one's feet had been washed. And after all that they had been through together and had witnessed and heard, you'd think that any one of the disciples would have been happy to wash the feet of their rabbi, their master, their teacher, their friend, Jesus. They had even heard Jesus talk about this before. Look at what Jesus had said to them earlier. It's found in Matthew 23, 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. They had already been taught this. They could have figured this moment out. But unfortunately, they were too busy thinking about other things. Like, once again, 
which one of them was the greatest. Yes, they were having that argument again. And so as they reclined, thinking about how awesome they were, they seemed to have missed what was happening around them. Meanwhile, Jesus was removing his outer garment, wrapping a towel around his waist, and preparing to do the lowliest servant's job. And then apparently without warning, he began to wash his disciples' feet. Talk about awkward. Um, I can imagine a stunned silence as the shame set in heavily on the disciples. What was happening here? Their master, their rabbi, was washing the filth off their feet. Previously, it had always been some Gentile servant doing the washing, and I'm guessing that no one really took notice of who the person was that was doing the washing. But suddenly you look down and the Son of God is washing the dirt and scum off the bottom of your smelly, dirty feet. Now we know Peter, so it doesn't come as a surprise that he says something in protest. He once again questions the actions of his rabbi. Lord, you wash my feet? Another rebuke, he addresses Jesus as Lord, but then he questions his decision. And Jesus, in an attitude of grace, says to Peter, you don't really understand what I'm doing right now, but you'll get it later. Peter says, never, Jesus. You will never wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash you, you're not going to be able to have a relationship with me. You're not going to be able to be in fellowship with me. And so Peter, being Peter, says, okay, wash my whole body then. (laughs) And Jesus' response reveals some truth about cleansing about what the Bible talks about when it, when it speaks of cleansing. Jesus talks about two kinds of cleansing here. There are two different words that are being used here. He talks about a bath, and he talks about a foot washing. The bath refers to something that Paul wrote about in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. This is what Paul wrote. He said, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is the bath that we received when we were adopted into God's family. It was a one-time deal. We were forgiven, past, present, and future. Our slate was wiped clean. We became new creations in Christ. The debt we owed has been paid once when we sin we do not need to bathe this way again that's not required of us this happened once and its power to make us clean before god is unshakable and unchangeable we're no longer guilty we have been declared not guilty by god because of this bath that came through the blood of jesus christ and then there's the foot washing and the symbolism is really strong here every day We pick up the filth of this world, don't we? Every day. We're exposed to evil and sin and all kinds of filthy things. And every day we need that foot washing that Jesus is modeling here. Every day we need to confess our sins, the mistakes that we've made that day, and the things that we've exposed ourselves to, often by choice, and allow Jesus to wash our spirits clean from the filth of the day. Two kinds of washing, both necessary. And Peter was learning all this in the moment that we're looking at here today. 
When we study Peter's letters, we will see just how well he learned this lesson. Peter, the leader of the disciples, was learning how to lead, and he was learning from the best. Peter was learning that our pride is what stands in the way of us being able to lead effectively. Was it the act of foot washing that taught Peter so much? No. Foot washing is just an act. There are some churches in this country that practice foot washing like they practice communion. But I don't think that's at all what Jesus intended here. I don't. Uh, If I scheduled regular foot washing services maybe every third Sunday of the month here, what do you think would happen? Well, for starters, we'd, it would be easy for us to predict our lowest attendance Sundays. <laughs> and I also think that before every foot washing service, every one of us would do what? You know, wash our feet before we came, wouldn't we? <laughs> Spray them with all kinds of stuff. And <laughs> the act of foot washing was not what Jesus was teaching Peter here. It's not. You will not find another foot washing recorded in the Bible. Just this once. What Jesus was teaching Peter and the others was much deeper than that. Jesus was teaching his disciples about the danger of pride in a person's life. He was teaching them that they needed to be cleansed by him in order to be set free from the power and the penalty of sin. Jesus was teaching his disciples about what it really means to be cleansed and how they needed to be cleansed daily from the filth that they pick up in the world that they live in. Jesus was teaching his disciples about submission to God's plan through the way he was submitted to dying for their sake. Jesus was teaching his disciples about humility, about taking the lowliest place in order to be exalted or raised up by God, not by themselves. He was teaching them about their attitudes, about their inner life. That level was once again the target of his teaching and the way that he modeled life for them. And above and over all that, Jesus loved his disciples. He loved them deeply. And this foot washing was yet another demonstration of his love for them. That love with that perspective is what Jesus is asking us to have and to demonstrate to the people in our lives. Jesus loved Peter. Jesus loved Judas Iscariot as well. He washed Judas' feet along with the other disciples. He loved those who loved him and those who did not. And he's asking us to lay down our lives, to lay down our pride and our status, to lay down our plans and our schedules, and to love like he loves. To love like he loves. You and I need the love of Jesus. We live because of that love. And the world needs us to live out that love that's been extended to us, a love that can transform us from the inside out and make us more like Jesus. His kingdom, his church, will be built here on that kind of love. I'm gonna invite the ushers to come now and the worship team to come back up and close out the service for us. Let's pray together as they do. Father, the love that you express to us is sometimes overwhelming. 
the very thought that you would give your son for us to die in our place almost takes my breath away. That I didn't have to pay for it. That I couldn't pay for it. But that your son, Jesus Christ, came and took my place became the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. The last, the final, the ultimate lamb who would take away the sins of the world, my sin, and wipe me clean. God, thank you for the love that you have for me. Thank you for the love that you have for every person here today. Reassure them of that love today. Let them know just how much you love them. Let them be reminded of the fact that you went to great lengths to express that love. And that you've given us another example here today in your word of just how deep that love is. That your son, the son of you, God, the creator of the universe, your spotless son would take a knee and wash the feet of his disciples. God, there are so many days when I just want to hide that filth from you. I don't want you to see it at all. And I'm sure there are many who feel that same way. And it's so hard sometimes to receive the loving, hum- humble sacrifice of your son when he comes and says, let me take care of that for you. Let me wash away all the junk that you've picked up today through your sin and the sin of this world. Let me wash that off for you. The fact that your son, Jesus Christ, is that kind of servant to us is a remarkable thing. So God, when he says that we ought to do for each other what he's done for us, teach us what that means because it's very personal. But it doesn't mean just physically washing someone's feet. We know that. It means that we need to take the lowliest place, that we need to come to others as servants and look for ways that we can serve them in love no matter what that looks like. Father, make us your servants here on earth. Servants of each other. But not servants that just do that because that's what servant leaders are supposed to do or that's the thing that was modeled. Help us to see that it's not the act. The act will come. You'll show us what that is. Work in our hearts to create the kind of love for each other that Jesus had for his disciples and that he asked them to have for each other. Teach us to love the way Jesus loved. Thank you for providing for us, for for taking care of us always, for protecting us, for guiding us, for being there for us, for listening to us, and for forgiving us and extending us grace and for loving us. We want to love you back in as many ways as we possibly can. We love you, God, and we're thankful to be your children. And we pray all this in Jesus' name.
Amen.